Whenever there's a thought or an action, you know that that thought or action is present and you also know whether that thought or action will lead to suffering or whether it will lead to happiness. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Joshua Hill. Josh, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Uh, You began exploring Buddhism and took to serious practice 2008 when you were at the age of 22. I want to read just a little bit of background for our listeners here. Sure. That you had gone on your first week-long meditation retreat in 2012 And you've gone through several mindfulness trainings over the years and a three-year mentorship before becoming a formal member of the TPN Zen Order, established by the Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. Yeah, he's he's a pretty popular author. When Oprah talks about you, people know about you. Right, right. Absolutely. (laughs) And right now you facilitate True Mountain Sangha, a small Buddhist meditation group in Salt Lake City. And you're the head coordinator for Buddhist religious services and secular mindful class volunteers at the Utah State Prison. You teach meditation and qigong, kind of like a tai chi with various movements. There's a lot for us to talk about here. Yeah. (laughs) So first of all, you talk about – Going to a serious retreat, were you very stressed? A lot of people think that of Buddhism as a, a way for inner peace. I mean, I was more excited than stressed, hmm. I would say. What drew you towards practice of Buddhism and mindfulness? I think initially it was just kind of the pop culture imagery of Buddhism, you know, that it kind of represented this sort of peacefulness and wisdom, somewhat of a kind of mystical feeling to it. I think in the 90s, you know, there was the use of the yin-yang symbol and stuff like that that was related to Eastern philosophy. So there was just kind of a general impression that I had that seemed really appealing. And then, of course, later on, I kind of learned more than just the pop culture image that was there. (laughs) I remember myself. uh, There's a certain appeal to seeing what to me as an American seemed a bit exotic Mm-hmm. The beautiful colored robes, the saffron robes. Absolutely. And the idea of actually having some mastery of your mind. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that image of being able to stay calm and focused through the storms of life and to have this kind of sense of solidity and, and direction that I think is really exemplified when you see these images of monks and things. The image of serenity you see in these pictures of monks meditating. I have a little sitting Buddha in my office. Cool. And what it does for me is every time I open my door and I walk in, because it's always with deadlines and stress, I look at it and I remember to go, (sighs) That's perfect. That's exactly what that should be. What that should do when you see it, you know, just remind you to breathe and relax. Like you said, you found something deeper than just that image once you started actually paying attention and going to a meditation retreat. Will you talk us through – I read a quote by the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. It's, of course, Tibetan Buddhism, right. it's speaking in Salt Lake City and telling people, don't take what I say to become Buddhists. Take what I say, take what you can use to become 
better Catholics or better whatever you are. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for our listeners, do you think or do most Buddhists think of themselves as being part of a religion? Or is it more a spiritual practice somehow? Buddhism is interesting because it kind of fits into the category of religion and not religion. And one of the things that I found really interesting about Buddhism is that it's not totally founded on a particular belief system necessarily like we typically would think of in religion, that there's this set description of, you know, where we come from and and the way that the universe is come to be and everything. What I've found is Buddhism seems to be more about a path and a lifestyle. One of my teachers, he refers to Buddhism as a wisdom tradition, as being Mm. the more accurate description. But of course, because there's such a deep spiritual element in Buddhism and people take that into a cultural context, I think it does become a religion, you know, where there are very formal ceremonies and and formal practices that go along with it that kind of do put it in the framework of a religion. But at its very core, it's more about creating a lifestyle and a path through life. Would you say as a young person, a child, a teenager, were you someone who thought about spiritual matters? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was raised in a religious household, not a Buddhist household, but Spiritual principles were really valuable to me even when I was young. And then, you know, in my teenage years, I really kind of wanted to explore and see what the different varieties of spiritual teachings there were available to benefit from. And also I'd say the really big thing about the TPN order specifically is the emphasis on engaged Buddhism. So not just creating peace within yourself, of course, that's the foundation, but really making a lifestyle out of bringing that into the world and trying to address current issues and to bring Mm. the spirit of Buddhism into the daily issues that we have in our society. This is so helpful just to get kind of this overview, but of course, I want to zero in on you. So just in the course of your life, your daily walk, whatever your personal path is, Mm Are there goals? Are there ways of being that you're working towards that do you think, well, I'm not there yet? But talk to me about what that path means. In my daily routines, the practice of just stopping for a moment and kind of like you described with um, your response when you see the little sitting Buddha in your office, you know, to be able to stop what you're doing and take a couple breaths and check in with yourself is one of the most important practices to me because we have this term called habit energy in Buddhism that's like we have this kind of pre-programmed patterns of thought and emotional response and behavior. And just by taking that moment to pause and breathe, we can recognize what kind of track we're on and we really have the freedom to stop and choose a different train of thought or a different emotional response that we want to be offering to a situation. And so those little moments of pause just kind of give us the opportunity to bit by bit change the course of our lives, I think. This sounds really good for interpersonal relationships, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Ways of just not automatically reacting to some situation. Right. Another one of the teachers that I have 
been lucky to practice with. He really liked to quote Viktor Frankl, and I'm probably not going to perfectly repeat the quotation, but the space between stimulus and response is where free will is accessible. Thich Nhat Hanh has said that mindfulness is where we find the opportunity to exercise free will. It's when you're able to stop and really look at what's happening that you can make a conscious decision. That's a really good definition of mindfulness. It's a word that sometimes gets used as a buzzword, sort of exported from Buddhism to anything. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and so take me a little deeper into that. I mean, there's so many layers and I think, you know, dynamic ways of of interpreting the word mindfulness. But I think one of the really important factors that a lot of Buddhist teachers point out is that when the Buddha taught mindfulness, he specifically taught, so mindfulness is called uh, smirti in the Sanskrit. And typically he would say sama smirti and not just smirti alone. And sama means like upright or correct or appropriate. So appropriate mindfulness or wise mindfulness, I think, is one of the key things that can help us kind of dive deeper into what this is really about. One of the ways that one of his head disciples described right mindfulness was whenever there's a thought or an action, you know that that thought or action is present, and you also know whether that thought or action will lead to suffering or whether it will lead to happiness. Mindfulness is really the art of paying close attention and recognizing what we're creating in our lives, whether we're creating joy or whether we're creating suffering. And so it's this constant ability to to just carefully look into what it is that we're doing, whether that's with the mind or through speech or through physical actions. One thing that fascinates me in The Little I Know about Buddhism is the idea of letting go of attachments. Mm -hmm. What is your personal experience with that? Or can you tell me more about what that means? There's kind of this concept, and it's really embedded in the Four Noble Truths, especially in the Second Noble Truth. Which is? um, Which is that the causes of suffering, or the primary causes of suffering anyways, are greed and hatred and ignorance. And so the greed portion of that is where we look at attachment, where there's some kind of stimulus or some kind of object or experience in our life, and we really like it because it's really pleasant. You know, we can make a distinction between pleasant and wholesome because there's a lot of things that are pleasant at first, but they turn into unpleasant, you know, Mm -hmm. later on down the road as they really bear the fruit. So attachment is when we come in contact with one of these experiences, we grab a hold of it and we want to make it last longer or we want to reproduce it over and over and over again. And because of that, we start to live our lives in a way that's controlled by the pleasantness of the experience. And that keeps us living on a really shallow level 
When you put it in those words, I can picture my life being me as a rat in a maze, and I keep running to the one button that gives me food. Yeah, absolutely. Over and over. That's I, what I'm picturing. Yeah. Without really thinking about it that much. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really accurate metaphor for for what <laughs> what we're trying to describe here. You know, that without realizing it, we often do kind of become that rat in the maze, and we're just pursuing that initial experience of pleasure instead of really taking a step back and looking at the big picture and and acting according to a broader perspective or maybe some deeper, more meaningful goals. You work with secular mindfulness class volunteers at the Utah State Prison. I'm thinking because you work with addictions and some other mental health issues that this is a big part of it. That's a very useful component of what you would teach. Yeah, very much so. You know, working in the addiction field and... And I should probably mention you're also studying sociology right now, hoping to become a licensed counselor, as well as the fact that you are an ordained Buddhist priest. I think that that'll hopefully give me a broader opportunity and just more tools and avenues to try to address other people's suffering and help them find ways out of it. Do you ever teach meditation and find that people are uncomfortable with their own thoughts, their own mind, being themselves? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I think, a common response that people have. And so, you know, one of the initial practices in mindfulness is to train ourselves to just observe without having to get involved. When I first started really taking mindfulness practice seriously, and observing the thoughts that passed through my mind, a lot of them I was really uncomfortable with, you know. A lot of them were very fear-based. A lot of them were reactionary, you know. A lot of thoughts of regret or thoughts of discontent. And, you know, if we don't take care of the world that's going on inside of us, and I think that we don't typically develop that skill It's not really emphasized in our society to stop and take care of what's going on inside. Mm. Then we have a tendency to develop a lot of bad habits just with the way that our mind has the tendencies. And so initially, being able to just watch and recognize and not get caught up in all of the negativity that's going on inside is really helpful. You know, we have to be able to stop and observe without reacting before we can skillfully engage with what's going on. What differences do you see in people who actually pursue this? You know, one of the first things is when people have a feeling that they aren't meditating correctly or they can't meditate because they do have, you know, this constant stream of thoughts Mm. going through their mind. (laughs) And we teach them that that's part of the meditation, that instead of looking at the thoughts that are going through our mind as as an obstacle to the meditation, that you welcome that. You say, okay, this is part of my experience too. We don't have to fight or push away those thoughts. I think that people kind of get an initial sense of relief like, it's okay. it's okay. To, to even observe and live with my bad thoughts. Right, right, absolutely. And but, but it sounds like as an observer is what, is what you were saying. Yeah, I think so. Is, I it, think, is it that stepping out that gives us that space you were talking about? 
Yeah, it is. And, you know, there's a lot of methodology of creating that ability to not get pulled in and dominated by our thought processes. Mm. But the main one is bringing the attention back to the breath. The way that I try to teach meditation a lot of the time anyways is that we let the thoughts pass through without fighting against them or trying to control them but we try to keep our main focus on the breath and so we're letting the thoughts happen but by shifting our attention that kind of helps the mind not get hijacked by Mm. the stream of thoughts and as we develop that ability to not get pulled into the thoughts by staying aware of the breath then we can start to notice and pay attention and work with the thoughts more skillfully because we have that anchor of feeling our breathing happening so that there's always this element of being present to more than just the thoughts. Hmm. I'm fascinated by the fact that you are actually in a spiritual pursuit and using your physical self as a tool. Yeah, that's a really a really key principle. So in one of the main teachings on meditation in the Buddhist sutras, it's called the four establishments of mindfulness. And the first establishment is the body. And so there's a lot of exercises of just anchoring awareness into your physical bodily experience. You know, noticing the breath is one of them. Checking in with the physical sensations in the body in a body scan where you start at the top of your head and you take a few breaths and you just notice, you know, what does it feel like to have my hair resting on my scalp? What does it feel like to really notice the difference between the softness of the tissue and the the firmness of bone that I can feel within my body? You just kind of work your way down to the tips of the toes. That really gives us something to anchor into to ground ourselves in the present moment. And it starts to help us work out that a lot of the habitual reactions we have are physical. You know, we have stress and the muscles tighten up or the breath gets faster. And so by coming in to an awareness of our physical experience and just being able to kind of soften into that, it really helps us to start with something tangible as far as developing that awareness and easing our reaction. I think I'm looking for you to tell me a story, which is the story of you discovering this and it making sense to you. So like I mentioned, when I first started practicing mindfulness, I was really noticing the stream of thoughts that were going through my mind. And and like I mentioned as well, that was really troubling at first. And so as I started connecting with other Buddhist practitioners, and especially uh, when I went on that retreat at the monastery in California, I learned that by paying attention to my breath and body, I could give my mind a break. That's another thing that comes to the skillful use of mindfulness, is where you direct your mindfulness has a lot to do with the way that you're going to respond to your experience. So... Engaging in the body scan practice, and then there's also a meditation called loving kindness, where you're just getting in touch with kind, friendly attitudes and bringing that to yourself and then extending that to others. Those helped kind of calm the waves of all of my mental habits. Did other people notice a change? Or did you notice the change at first? Was it evident to you? 
Yeah, I think my family members were really the first ones to start commenting on it. You know, my my mom, you know, she started making comments like, you seem, you know, you just seem happier now. Mm. You seem more at ease. And coming to interpersonal relationships being something that really benefits from this. I remember I was having a an argument with my mom and I suddenly realized it just hit me like a light bulb that the way that this is going is just going to make things worse and not better. (laughs) And so I told my mom, I said, I'm just, I'm going to go for a walk right now. And at first she was upset because she thought that I was abandoning the conversation and and being apathetic. Uh But I went for a walk and I was really mindful of my steps. I was practicing walking meditation after about 20 minutes of that, I came back and re-engaged the conversation. And I said, you know, I'm sorry I walked away. I just needed to calm down for a minute. Can we talk about this some more? I just want this to be productive instead of destructive. That was a really big moment because initially she thought that what I was doing was avoidance. That's a habit of mine definitely is avoidance. But instead of just running away from the situation, I took time to hold it with an attitude of kindness and awareness and then come back to it. And that's been really, I think, the a really key pivotal point for me is like that whenever we get on a track, you know, I kind of think of it as like a railroad track, you know, if we get on this track that's headed for trouble, having this practice of mindfulness, of of self-observation. We can catch that. We can stop what we're doing. And I think this is a really important thing about some of the misconceptions about meditation, too, is that we're not meditating to avoid life or to isolate away from the world. We're meditating just so that things can calm down and we can get a better look at them. And then we engage. Mm. And it's that art that helps us resolve problems, whether that's between ourselves and others or whether that's within ourselves. But just being able to stop and, and really kind of touch ground and then use that to reflect, I think, helps us to just respond in new ways. I'm, as a parent, really relating to your mother's reaction at seeing growth in a very encouraging way. And, you know, sometimes, for me anyways, I have this expectation of, like, immediate change, you know, like that because I'm a meditator, I'm not going to get in arguments (laughs) in the first place. I'll never honk my horn. Right, (laughs) right, you know, that I'm never going to feel frustrated when my kids are arguing or feel frustrated when things aren't going the way that I want them to. And that's I found that that's not the case, and it doesn't have to be the case. That it's not about just making our problems going away. It's about being able to address our problems with a sense of freshness, you know, so that we have a, a new, a new start hmm. that we can have available to us to address our problems in more productive ways. I'd like to maybe ask a couple of questions with the intent of setting up a question that I want to get to. Okay. If I understand that, well, the Buddha is seen as an enlightened teacher, Mm. but not necessarily as a divinity. Or can you set me straight on that? I think, again, 
where we come into this territory of more of a yes and kind of response. <laughs> In a lot of cultures, it is common and acceptable if people pray to Buddha to help them through difficulties. But where we can take this to kind of a deeper level is that the word Buddha doesn't just refer to the historical person, Siddhartha Gautama, that became enlightened in India 2,500 years ago. The word Buddha really refers to the state of mind that he attained, that this awareness, this peaceful willingness to respond to pain compassionately and wisely is what Buddha means, and that that capacity of wakefulness, of care, that that's present in every single one of us, and it's also present in the world around us. And so if you see somebody praying to Buddha, it's not wrong for them to be doing that or, or a false representation of the tradition. But to varying degrees, we might be aware that that quality is something that can be found within ourselves. It can be found within our mentors and our family members. Mm. And so to look to Buddha for relief is, I think, very appropriate. But what the nature of that word Buddha is, is not just a separate being that you're asking to come rescue you. It's it's really a quality that you're trying to get in touch with, mm. that the nature of that quality is to heal suffering. That question is to lead to yet another question. How do you experience, I guess I'm going to call it an elevated spiritual sense. Are there things in nature or wherever, is there some essence, or maybe you've just described with what you've told me, that feels like the divine, something that you can connect with? Yeah, and I've had some experiences where I feel more deeply in touch with the miraculousness of life or with the sense of well-being that we have available to us. That's shown up in different ways. Being on retreat has really has the ability to help us get in touch with that because we're spending time quieting down and everybody's coming together for the purpose of creating the sense of love and understanding. But for myself and also some of my friends that I've gone on retreat with too, practicing walking meditation where you slow down and you really, really savor each step that you take and each sight that's available. The amount of focus and ease and presence that you cultivate through that practice, it has a way of revealing the real beauty of things. And so practicing walking meditation, you know, or any kind of meditation, you might look out and see the way that an oak leaf is just gently moving in the breeze. And suddenly it just kind of hits you and you're like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. It's so beautiful. It's that ability to appreciate the miraculousness of everyday things, I think, that really creates that sense of the sacred 
that we can be in touch with and that it's not it's not something that we have to seek that's really far away that it's something that's it's right under our nose all the time you know your child might fall asleep and all of a sudden you're aware of the tenderness that's there in the way that they're breathing and you're just moved to this feeling of deep love and gratitude meditation practicing mindfulness is just about becoming sensitive to those subtle beauties that life gives us. As you talk to me, I have all these images flooding my mind, but it's almost one of discovering, instead of looking for an unknown thing, Mm -hmm. that it might be almost sweeping away the debris that's blocking something that's actually already there. That's absolutely, absolutely what we're talking about with Buddhist practice is that peace and happiness and freedom, it really is our nature. But we have this, we, for some reason, we just have this tendency to cover it over. <laughs> and a lot of the Buddhist poetry actually does refer to the art and practice of meditation as sweeping away the dust. I'm not a big fan of housework, but I'm going to try and keep <laughs> this image in my mind. <laughs> The Four Noble Truths are so foundational. The first noble truth is that there's suffering. That's part of our experience. The second truth is that there are causes, there are things that lead to that. The third noble truth is that different things that we do can actually relieve suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is that there are specific practices that we can find that are really concrete in relieving suffering. Anything I should have asked you, but I didn't know to ask. There's one question that my kids wanted me to answer on here, and that was what their names were. They wanted their names to be <laughs> broadcast Go for it. On Go there. for it. So <laughs> my boys are Jack, Riley, and Soul, and they just were really adamant. We want Dad to say our names on the radio, so I just had to get that in. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> Josh Hill became a formal member of the TPN Zen Order in 2017, which was established by the Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh. And he facilitates both meditation and Qigong to mental health patients on a weekly basis, volunteers at the Utah State Prison studying sociology. Josh, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest from the TPN Zen Order, Joshua Hill. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. What's the difference between a life path and a religion? Are they two different things, or maybe two ways of seeing the same thing? Have you found a way to pause and breathe, even in difficult moments, and let go of what you don't need to hold on to? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Marshall Maurice is a grandfather, software developer, and is an inveterate limerick writer. Lanny Britch is a professor emeritus of history and Asian studies at BYU. He recently published Moramona, The Mormons in Hawaii. 
Steve Vistonet is an artist and musician who can't get enough of life. He's father to three lovely daughters and grandpa to four awesome grandchildren. Tanya Vistonet is an artist and overthinker. She's married to Steve with the same three daughters and four grandchildren and always tries to find the joy in life. Solomon Reynolds is a recent college graduate who's currently trying to navigate homelessness and unemployment. I was fascinated by the question that you raised, is Buddhism a religion, or words to that effect. This has been kicked around an awful lot by scholars over the centuries, I think I can say. It all depends on whether you want to take a Christian view of what, how you define religion, which always includes God, or God in some form, or whether you take a, an attitude that says, wait a minute, anything that is spiritual, anything that's uplifting, anything that takes me down a path that uh, is enlightening or words to that effect, uh, there are so many definitions of religion. In my world religions class, I used to spend two periods going over all the definitions of religion that I could find. And by almost any stretch, Buddhism is clearly a religion. There is adoration of the founder. There is spiritual practice. There is uh, rules. There are uh, ways of following towards a better life, which all fits in with the general realm of religion. I think what was so telling of Buddhism, at least from Josh's recounting of it, was it was almost embodied just in his voice. It was so laid back. I felt myself feeling at Zen, just listening. He could have talked about, you know, ingredients on a shampoo bottle, and I would have felt completely at ease in my own body. <laughs> I, I liked what he had to say about bringing, he said, bring the spirit of Buddhism into daily life. So even though I'm a religious person uh, in a formal way, the things I heard him say, I just kept thinking, well, I should do this. I should do this. He talked about walking meditation and about noticing the, the beauty around you. And I thought, that's something I've really wanted to do better. And so if Buddhism is a religion, at least in, a, in the way that Lanny talked about it, for me, what he talked about made a lot of sense in terms of my own religious tradition. Yeah, I love the idea of walking meditation. In fact, when he mentioned that, I actually thought of a story, and I guess this is more driving meditation, <laughs> but um, my wife and I were driving on a road one day, and it was, it was near sunset, and it was just gorgeous. Without even looking at her, she pulled over to, so we could stop and take a picture, and the thing that I loved about it is there were about five other cars in front of us who had done the same thing. And it made me really happy to notice that, gosh, there's all these people, and they pulled over to notice this beautiful world we live in as well. And so I love that concept of noticing your surroundings and noticing all of it. So I love that, and I will continue to practice and work on my walking meditation because I think it's beautiful. A point that I really enjoyed, Josh talked about, at least he, he seemed to define religion as something that you use to cope with human suffering. And I, I thought to myself— what is the purpose of my religion? What is the purpose of my religious beliefs? And do I actually find inner peace and joy? Or do I find just an added religious stress that comes from the way that I practice my own religion? And I was thinking a lot about what he was explaining with mindfulness and how you can 
objectively take a look at everything that you're feeling, everything that's going on in your life, and not judging it, not compartmentalizing it. And I really enjoyed what he said about how do we deal with our fears? How do we deal with our own pain? And a lot of the inmates that he dealt with were uncomfortable with their own minds. And I feel like at least from a Christian standpoint, uh, we deal with our own suffering with with the idea of a savior figure, someone that has, has suffered all of this for me so I don't have to suffer it. But what I really enjoyed and what I would like to add into my own life is just taking a step back from all of the suffering that I'm feeling and, and submitting myself to it and saying, I guess this is just a part of life. Now let me find the kindness. Let me find the love that's definitely in here. You know, Solomon, I, I was also moved by that uh, same line of thought where he talked about being willing or able to live with your own thoughts. Zen Buddhism is often characterized as having no thought or having thoughts that are totally non-rational. The sound of one hand clapping, uh, which is probably the most famous koan in Japanese. But if you're really trying to clear your mind, can you ever be satisfied with the fact that you can't clear your mind? <laughs> uh, but to me, this, this was an answer to that old conundrum. He said, go ahead, live with it. It's going to be there, and I think uh, somehow you're going to to move on, and and you will get beyond the what do you say the stuck phase of having it forever with you. You know, he mentioned when you want to not clear your mind, but when you want to focus, think about uh, your breathing, your breath. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's not what I do. When I want to, when I want to do that, I, I I take myself mentally out to my wood shop behind my house and start building stuff. And uh, I really related to to this idea of getting away from the thing that's troubling you or maybe the thoughts you don't want to have for whatever reason and sending yourself somewhere else. And I'm going to try this. Maybe breathing is easier because I don't have to have a project. I liked his part about calming down your body. I often find myself at night spinning in my own brain and not able to turn it off. I don't know how else to describe it, but it doesn't stop spinning. When he's saying... Pay attention to your breath and body so you can give your mind a break. And that's the only thing I've figured out how to actually do is I'll lay there and think, okay, toes, be quiet. <laughs> Feet, be quiet, and kind of go up. And I'm wondering, I actually took a course, and um, we read Siddhartha, and I, I read a lot of different readings on Buddhism and things in high school. I don't remember them all, but I do remember the feeling of searching for your calm where is your peace? And sometimes you'll picture something like my heart, I'm going to calm my heart down, or I'm going to calm my brain down. And that feels, I just really like this, like ground yourself and anchor yourself and find a place to help it stop spinning. And oftentimes I'll go to sleep still spinning and wake up at three in the morning, I'll write something down on a piece of paper next to my bed. And then I'm, it's out. And then I'm able to go back to sleep in the next morning. Sometimes I can read it. Often I can't. But it got out. And so I like that idea of how do we breathe or how do we think of different parts of us and calm ourselves down to be able to sleep. I love the phrase that he coined, little moments of pause. Mm -hmm. And for me, I guess I rediscover that clouds exist probably once a month. I think that as often as I go and go and go and as I do and do and do, that all along the way that there are opportunities to feel and to see and to hear. And I guess if 
food presents itself, smell and to taste or whatever the, whatever the case may be. I remember I was on a bike ride one day, really, really focused on getting everything that I need done, done, and thinking about how incapable I was at getting all of those things done. And I noticed the sun was setting and there were these beautiful, billowing, fluffy clouds in the air. And I thought, I can stop. <laughs> I can get off my bike and I can take a picture. And I can take a look at this. I can take a breath. I can breathe. The things that I need to get done, they'll still be there. <laughs> and I can still I still have either the capability or the incapability to tackle those tasks. But these clouds, they exist. And I get to look at them and I can find joy and peace by looking at those things. So I love finding that clouds exist, you know, every month when I when I'm when I'm going and doing. <laughs> clouds are my that to me, and it's very personal. Whoops. Um, clouds are my happy place. Hmm. Through clouds is God's language to me personally. And so if I'm having a hard time, that's why I pull over. I'm often drawn to outside to find some clouds. And uh, there's been many times when life feels extremely overwhelming. And all I have to do is go out, and especially the puffy clouds. I told my kids, when I die, I'm going to be in those puffy clouds. That's mom. <laughs> because I feel like that's my language. But I think all of us has it. He talked about the way the oak leaf moves in the breeze. I think all of us probably have something yeah. that we see something greater in. To me, it's clouds. To someone, it might be the beach or the river or water. But when you started talking about clouds, I was like, oh, that's my spot. <laughs> you know, I have an older brother who walks up Rock Canyon almost every day. He usually puts on about 10,000 steps. And fairly regularly now, he sends me a picture. And this morning's picture was absolutely beautiful. He was looking up Rock Canyon, Squaw Peak, beautiful clouds behind. And what it's made me realize as we're talking is that he's connecting with this peace that the world can provide if we stop and look and enjoy it. One of the things I really like that Josh said was right at the beginning he said to stay calm and focus through the storms of life. And uh, I really love that concept because, well, there's a lot of storms in life. And he also later on, he said, stop for a moment, take a few breaths and check in with yourself. And I think that's so important when these storms hit to stop, take a few breaths and check in. And I, I sometimes get so caught up in the moment that, well, my life is horrible and it's, it's miserable and how am I ever going to get out of this? And I forget that I have decades of joyful experiences of wonderful times in my life. And so I completely agree with him to stop and check in with yourself. And, and for me, it's to remember that, oh my gosh, there's been a lot of beautiful things in life and all the past storms have passed and this current one will pass as well. So I love that concept. Thank you, Josh. So I personally believe, I don't believe in a apathetic universe. I really believe that, that things are out there for my benefit and for everyone else's benefit. And I, I really do believe that whatever sort of entropy exists in the universe, that it's not too, too harmful to me and that there are things out there for me to grab. Um, have there ever been moments in y'all's life where, uh, where the universe grabs you by the shoulders and, and takes you out of your worries or your stress and says, hey, it's going to be okay? I remember I was a Christian missionary in Malaysia 
and that it's a tropical country. I had spent the summers growing up in Hawaii, where my father lived, and there's a type of bird that crows. Usually in the morning, it would wake me up every morning in the summertime, like seven or eight o'clock. Remind a bird. It's a. It's actually. It's it's a spotted neck dove, oh, Streptopelia okay. canensis. Uh, maybe locals would call it a, a pigeon. But if I can hear that dove, my body just immediately calms, finds peace within itself. I remember there was a very stressful day um, in Malaysia. I was feeling very overwhelmed. I was feeling very American, very English speaking, and completely out of my element. And I remember I opened up the window one day just on a whim, just to get some fresh air, and there was that that dove call. And it was that Streptopelia canensis. It was that spotted neck dove. And just out of nowhere, my body immediately released itself. And I feel like that was the universe saying, hey, everything's okay. Doves exist. Uh, you can take a shower. <laughs> Food still exists. The feelings on your clothes, uh, everything around you, it, it's not being encompassed by all of your stresses. I mean, things still exist and things are out there for your benefit, for your good. And I just thought that was a profound moment of peace for me and, and, a, and a, definitely a, a mark in realizing serenity. For me, this isn't an exact science or a completely good parallel, but there have been several times in my life when I have been really worried about my children one or another. Sometimes through thought and prayer, I've gained release from the trouble and actually a feeling that this is all going to be okay. Actually, on my desk when I was at BYU Hawaii, I had the words, this too shall pass. I was vice president of the, ran the faculty, and there were always wonderful rumors. And what solves rumors is facts. <laughs> and this too will pass. <laughs> the biggest problem that the Buddha saw was that our ongoing lives would continue because we are attached to this world. We're attached to things. We're attached to family. We're attached to love. We're attached to food. We're attached to so many things. And and much of this turns into greed, or it can, as, as uh, Josh said. that It can also turn into hatred, simply because of the intensity of our wanting to hold on to something that we think is good. We can also be deeply attached to our spouse. I think sometimes Buddhists would say, well, that attachment has to be released too. For me... I don't know whether I can. I don't think I can. I have a little difficulty, even though I admire so much. I love the compassion of Buddhism. A personal experience, I was a, a missionary in Hawaii. This is almost 60 years ago. I was never treated unkindly by a Buddhist. I was treated unkindly many times by Christians, even the sons and daughters of Buddhists. <laughs> but I, one of the reasons I went into this field of Asian studies and religions was to figure out why those Buddhists were so kind to us. They were mostly old, old people. I think part of it was that they were old enough to just like people instead of pushing and so forth. But they were filled with compassion. I was given so many glasses of cold water 
as I was hiking up and down the hillsides on the big island of Hawaii. I loved those old Buddhist people. They were wonderful. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Joshua Hill. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. I'm just thinking about the four 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 noble noble truths. truths. Okay, the four noble truths. And I didn't write all of it down, but I wrote the main The first one was life is suffering. Suffering, and then causes. Attachments are the causes of And then suffering. relieving there suffering. There is relief. And then, how, then the fourth is the uh, eightfold path of the various virtues that you need to develop. And honestly, I agree with all that. I think I look at mortality as suffering. We're here on this earth to learn, and much of that learning comes from suffering. And so it's interesting to then focus on what are some of the causes of it, how can I relieve it, and what are some of the practices I can do to relieve it in myself and in others. Sometimes it's letting go of that, and other times it's maybe looking inward and figuring out how we can fix ourselves. One thing you said is take care of the world going on inside of you. Mm. So what can I do? Do I need to change my mind? Do I need to let that go or not be around it? There does feel like there's a lot of negativity, and I think that is part of mortality, that we need to learn how to live with that and not let it bury us. I don't know. I often think about that. I think I could really let my brain go to a pretty negative place, especially with things going on and mm-hmm. all the stuff. It feels like it's always around us, but how? what's my zen or what's my – how do I – bring myself back to what is important to me or how I can deal? How do I relieve the suffering and what are some practices to relieve it in myself? Many years ago, I concluded that there are three really important realities. The first is that life is difficult. Second is that it's uncertain. And third, it's unfair. And it just dawned on me recently that I should add the words, life is difficult, therefore, what do I do about it? Life is uncertain, therefore, what should I do? How can I help humanity? And third, it's unfair, but maybe it's going to be unfair because I'm getting a better deal than I should be getting. Therefore, what do I do? But I think all of that actually fits in pretty well with Buddhism. It does, mm-hmm. yeah. I just think humanity, that's a human thing, is to figure out how to deal. <laughs> you know, to, this, deal. The, com- the comment about stimulus response, all the rest of the animals in the, in the whole world do not have the human ingredient that comes in between where we can think and determine what we're going to do with life. All the rest of them, it's just stimulus response with humans There's the ability to stop, breathe, and look at it and say, where do we go from here? I'm sitting here reviewing my notes from Josh's interview, and the thing that strikes me is what human being couldn't benefit from these teachings? I mean, they're so beautiful. Again, I'm looking at them and saying, you know, it's making a lifestyle, bringing peace to the world. How beautiful is that? And taking a step back and looking at the bigger picture and working on healing suffering. I mean, there's so many beautiful things here. 
Uh, one that I really like is he says to address our problems with a sense of freshness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's such a great idea as a step back and perhaps view how the other person has seen things. I'm a musician and an artist, and so my world is very subjective as to what people like. And it constantly amazes me how people all hear a song and say, that's one of the best things I've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And the person next to me is like, I think that's horrible. And I'm not wrong, and, and he's not wrong, and I'm right, and he's right. But it's kind of interesting. So I love this idea of looking at things with a fresh mind saying, well, that's interesting how you see that. And, and so, again, I just I love this idea of, of a fresh attitude toward things. And again, I, I think as, as humans, all of us could benefit from, from these teachings. That Buddhist paradox has really got my, my brain tube spinning, how those attachments that cause our suffering are the same attachments that can cause us pleasure or joy. Mm-hmm. My mom would tell me this, this Chinese parable a lot, almost annoyingly so, as I was growing up. And let me see if I can paraphrase it or, or read it or something. A Chinese farmer gets a horse, which soon runs away. A neighbor says, that's bad news. And the farmer replies, good news, bad news. Who's to say? So that horse comes back and brings another horse with him. Good news, you might say. The farmer gives the second horse to his son who rides it, then is thrown and badly breaks his leg. So sorry for your bad news, says the concerned neighbor. Good news, bad news. Who can say, the farmer replies. So in a week or so, the emperor's men come back and take every able-bodied young man to fight in a war, and the farmer's son is spared. So my mom would always have me think about all the things that are happening in my life and to take it... um, take it very patiently and and with a grain of salt and to try and widen my perspective. Is this good thing going to stay a good thing? And similarly, is this bad thing? Could it possibly lead to a good thing? I think one of my favorite stories within uh, the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's in a book of scripture called the Book of Mormon, um, 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 2. There's a father talking to his son, Lehi talking to Jacob, and he's he's counseling him. He's saying, Jacob, your two older brothers, they're kind of they're kind of big nasty jerks. Um, but uh, actually, let me just read it, just so so he can say it in his own words. And behold, in thy childhood thou hast suffered afflictions and much sorrow because of the rudeness of thy brethren. Nevertheless, Jacob, my firstborn in the wilderness, thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. And I've always loved that thought. I've always loved taking the universe and saying, whatever my station in life, things will work out for my benefit as I accept the kindness and as I try and widen my perspective and notice the good. I uh, appreciate you mentioning that, Solomon. I, I think one of the, for me, one of the most profound things that was said was actually something Steve said as he was trying to, to summarize what, what Josh had said. And he said, he talked about meditation or seeking the good. And he said, has to do with sweeping away the debris that's blocking something that's already there. And, uh, you know, this idea that there can be something really good, but b- because of our mindset or our experience or, or, or whatever else, we may, may miss that. I had my uh, uh, some grandchildren visit recently, and, you know, they were rowdy and, you know, whatever else like kids are going to be. It was lots of fun. But at one point, it was time for my granddaughter to take a nap. And so we put her in a separate room down in a pack and play. And uh, I forgot that she was in there and went in to grab something. And there she was awake, looking up at me. What could I do? I, I couldn't really just close the door and walk out. So I set her on the day bed and I lay down next to her, trying to get her to go to sleep. And I pretended to be asleep, you know, close my eyes. And her head was, you know, about down at my chest level. And after a few minutes, when she was very quiet, I opened my eyes and just kind of looked down at her. And she had her head tipped up and her eyes open, looking up across the top of her head at my face. And I thought, 
that is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. And I don't know if this is attachment that we're not supposed to have. I think it's a good attachment. I thought, I want to remember this moment for the rest of my life. All the other troubles swept away. And that one thing, that one hoped for, goodness shining through. Those are the moments when we're in the moment. And I think that's what he's trying to say is be in the moment. Be where your feet are. That's something Steve always says. Mm. Where you are, be there. And enjoy or take in or live where you are. Don't be thinking about the next thing. I always tend to think about, oh, when this is done, let's go on to the next thing. Oh, when this is done. And I have these lists in my head. And often he'll slow me down like, stop, recognize this minute, appreciate it, and then we'll move on. But, but I love that story of be where you are right then. Because oftentimes we speed by. Be where your feet are sounds like walking yes. meditation. Yes. It does. It does. <laughs> Last year was my final year in my undergraduate degree. And I guess with my self-inflated sense of importance or whatever, I was applying to a lot of, a lot of grad schools. It turns out I didn't get into a single one that I applied to. And I was thinking, man, was I studying the wrong thing? Did I apply to the wrong program? My aunt and uncle, they, they noticed, you know, I was pretty downtrodden. They said, hey, you can come live with us for the fall semester. Free rent, free food, which is, you know, pretty great deal. My aunt's a pretty good cook. And I thought, okay, I'll take you guys up on this offer. Although I wish I were at some Ivy League grad school right now studying something normal people can't pronounce, like the experiences that I've had with my aunt and uncle and being around their children, their seven, their nine-year-old and their 12-year-old, they have been so precious to me and I would not want to trade them for anything else. And so although something that I thought was a bad thing, it so seamlessly turned into something that I'll treasure forever. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Marshall, Lanny, Steve, Tanya, and Solomon, and especially to Joshua Hill from the TPN Zen Order for generously sharing his stories and his spiritual path. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, In Good Faith.